Welcome to the Kotki Ride Home for Tuesday, January 4th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, the history and future of predicting the future, plus a new open-source COVID vaccine that could help way more people around the world get vaccinated. And after taking down a statue of Robert E. Lee in Virginia, local experts found two time capsules inside its base. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. With the turn of a new year comes a lot of speculation about the months to come. In addition to clickbait headlines and think pieces, I also saw a pretty decent Reddit thread asking people to share things that they are pretty sure will happen in 2022. Guesses ranged from the personal, like losing weight and going into remission from cancer, to the general and pretty safe Netflix canceling a series too soon and Disney rebooting another classic to underwhelming response. To the more out there, like an alien invasion and George R.R. Martin writing a whole three pages of The Winds of Winter. Dabbling with predictions of the future as anything more serious than a casual thought experiment, however, is a dangerous game. As science historian Amanda Rees pointed out in a recent article for Wired, when someone, particularly world leaders, attempts to divine the future, they often fail to interpret it correctly, or fail to grasp how to prevent or leverage it. And if they do prevent a bad outcome that was predicted, then it would be chalked up as a failed prediction because, paradoxically, it didn't come true. And yet, we continue attempting to predict the future, whether for purposes of war, economics, climate forecasting, marketing, or personal gain or curiosity, just as we have done since our earliest days. Reese dug into the history of predicting the future, the history of the future, as she puts it, the pitfalls of various methods that have been employed throughout time, and why it is that we do it anyways. In outlining the broad types of methodology for predicting the future, Reese wrote, quote, Since the earliest civilizations, the most important distinction in this practice has been between individuals who have an intrinsic gift or ability to predict the future and systems that provide rules for calculating futures. The predictions of oracles, shamans, and prophets, for example, depended on the capacity of these individuals to access other planes of being and receive divine inspiration. Strategies of divination, such as astrology, palmistry, numerology, and tarot, however, depended on the practitioner's mastery of a complex theoretical rule-based and sometimes highly mathematical system, and their ability to interpret and apply it to particular cases. In the last century, technology legitimized the latter approach, as developments in IT, predicted at least to some extent by Moore's Law, provided more powerful tools and systems for forecasting. In the 1940s, the analog computer Moniac had to use actual tanks and pipes of colored water to model the UK economy. By the 1970s, the Club of Rome would turn to the World 3 computer simulation to model the flow of energy through human and natural systems via key variables such as industrialization, environmental loss, and population growth. Its report, Limits to Growth, became a bestseller despite the sustained criticism it received for the assumptions at the core of the model and the quality of the data that was fed into it. 
end quote. Another methodology Reese points to is polling opinions, both in large numbers of random samples and in small panels of experts. Then there is also wargaming, simulations of military exercises performed by actual humans or computer models, and more recently applied beyond the military in commercial and political sectors. As these various models have evolved and become endowed with more and more technology over time on top of their millennial-old bones, Reese points to two main philosophies undergirding different strategies, using the past to predict the future and believing the future is too different from the past for it to be useful and instead focusing on emerging variables to create a set of possibilities. Both are using newer technology in some instances, for example, an algorithm trained to predict the near future based on past behavior, or the aforementioned wargaming simulations focusing on a myriad of variables to predict multiple possible outcomes. But Reese sees a fatal flaw in both philosophies. For all the technology that may increasingly adorn them, they are still reliant on people— and rarely a representative set of people. Quoting Reese and Wired, Whatever the approach of the forecaster and however sophisticated their tools, the trouble with predictions is their proximity to power. Throughout history, futures have tended to be made by white, well-connected, cis-male people. This homogeneity has had the result of limiting the framing of the future, and as a result, the actions then taken to shape it. Further, predictions resulting in expensive or undesirable outcomes tend to be ignored by those making the ultimate decisions. This was the case with the nearly two decades worth of pandemic wargaming that preceded the emergence of COVID-19. Reports in both the U.S. and the U.K., for example, stressed the significance of public health systems in responding effectively to a global crisis, but they did not convince either country to bolster their systems. What's more, no one predicted the extent to which political leaders would be unwilling to listen to scientific advice. Even when futures did have the advantage of taking into account human error, they still produced predictions that were systematically disregarded where they conflicted with political strategies. Which brings us to the crucial question of who and what predictions are for. Those who can influence what people think will be the future are often the same people able to command considerable resources in the present, which in turn help determine the future. But very rarely do we hear the voices of the populations governed by the decision makers. End quote. Reese warns that just because one possible future might be predicted by an AI and is therefore viewed as highly scientific doesn't necessarily make it more accurate, even compared to predictions done by shamans and oracles, for example, because both reflect the expectation of the framers, in the AI's case, that of the coders. To combat this, Reese suggests we strive for a combination of the scientific with a bit of artistic interpretation, and come up with probabilities for a range of outcomes, not just try to hit on one true future. She even says perhaps we should think of it more as diagnosis than prediction, which all makes a lot of sense when it comes to matters of international relations, the global economy, and the climate emergency, but I think it could also be useful personally. You know, if you view your future as having many different possible outcomes with room for influences you simply could never imagine right now, you're setting yourself up for a heck of a lot less disappointment versus choosing to believe there is only one possible future for your life. You know, no matter what a tarot card or your family history or an app making calculations based on your personal data says, the history of your future is yet to be written. 
There's a new COVID vaccine on the block, and this time people all around the world might be able to access it. Called Corbivax, it was developed by a team at the Texas Children's Hospital Center for Vaccine Development at Baylor College of Medicine and is being shared patent-free. Co-developers Peter Hotez and Maria Elena Botazzi will not be making any money from the production of the open-source vaccine, although Baylor College will get a fee. Corbivax has already been approved in India, where manufacturer Biological E is planning to produce a billion doses this year. Other manufacturers around the world, particularly in low-income and under-vaccinated countries, are likely to follow as Hotez and Batazi are already in talks with a number of them as well as with the WHO. Hotez told the Washington Post, quote, We just want to see people get vaccinated. End quote. And quoting from the Houston Chronicle, Corbivax uses an old-school process that mimics the hepatitis B vaccine. It should be much easier and cheaper for countries to recreate, manufacture, and distribute. In trials, Corbivax proved a 90% efficacy rate against the original COVID-19 strain and about 80% against the Delta variant. We don't yet know its effectiveness against Omicron. Batazi and Hotez said 150 million doses are ready to go, with 100 million more per month expected next year. End quote. Batazi and Hotez said that 150 million doses are ready to go, with 100 million more per month expected this year. End quote. And from New Atlas, quote, Corbivax is based on a traditional protein-based technology that has been safely used for decades. Like other COVID-19 vaccines, Corbivax focuses on the coronavirus spike protein. But instead of using mRNA to direct our cells to produce those spike proteins internally, it delivers lab-grown spike proteins to the body. The researchers took the gene that codes for the spike protein and engineered yeast to produce it. These proteins are collected, purified, and combined with an adjuvant to enhance immune responses. This exact method has been used to produce the hepatitis B vaccine for years. Protein-based vaccines have been widely used to prevent many other diseases, have proven safety records, and use economies of scale to achieve low-cost scalability around the world, says Batazi, end quote. Corbivax is not without its critics, however, quoting the Washington Post, The very limited clinical data about the effectiveness of the Texas Children's Hospital vaccine, there is a complete lack of data for the Omicron variant, has led some vaccine experts to take a skeptical view of the project. Biological E has said that it has completed two phase three clinical trials involving more than 3,000 people across India, with one finding that Corbivax is more than 80% effective against symptomatic disease, but the company has not publicly released the underlying data. Joseph Osmundson, a virologist at New York University, criticized the high hopes for Corbivax, given the lack of public data from phase three clinical trials. It's healthcare for lower and middle income countries that we would never accept here, Osmundson said. James Krellenstein, co-founder of the health equity organization Prep for All, noted that unlike Texas Children's Hospital, Biological E has a financial interest in the vaccine. Maybe this vaccine will be great, maybe it won't, he said, but science, especially when it involves public health, is based on objective analysis of open data, not trusting the word of a vaccine manufacturer with a vested interest in the underlying product, end quote. 
So, like so much else, we need more data and we'll have to wait and see, but Corbivax is fairly promising. Though Biological E has not stated the price per dose yet, the Post reports that Indian media has been claiming it could be as low as $2.50 a dose, making it one of the cheapest options in the world. And James Love, director of Knowledge Ecology International, who has been consulting with Hotez and Batazi on global rollout, reminded the Post that there are 3 billion unvaccinated people around the world. That means we need 6 to 9 billion doses of vaccine, and we are nowhere near hitting that mark. Hopefully, Corpovax turns out to be as safe and effective as possible because an open-source kind of vaccine that can be accessibly manufactured around the world is exactly the kind of solution that we need. Well, going back to the future talk, as monuments to Confederate leaders and slave owners have been pulled down around the United States, some have argued that we're erasing history with them. But, as the Mary Sue points out, it turns out there was even more history to be found beneath the statues. In Richmond, Virginia, two time capsules have been discovered inside the base of the Confederate General Robert E. Lee statue that was taken down in September. At first, in mid-December, crews found a lead box that they chipped out of the 2,000-pound granite block that served as the base of the statue. The box was discovered to be a time capsule from 1887, containing a coin, an envelope, a pamphlet, a book, an 1875 almanac, and another text. Now, many of the items experienced water damage from condensation caused by the temperature change after the box was taken out of the stone, and conservators also had to work quickly to stabilize the objects once they were exposed to the air. Quoting NPR, Historians working from records from the Library of Virginia estimate the time capsule was placed in the cornerstone on October 27, 1887, by 37 Richmond residents, organizations, and businesses, according to the governor's office. But their predictions of its contents appear to be inaccurate. They believed as many as 60 objects had been placed inside, and while the contents of the cloth envelope remain unknown, the box contained only a fraction of that number. They had thought the box itself would be copper, but it turned out to be lead, end quote. But then a week later, crews working at the site discovered another chest that they believed to be the actual one described in the 1887 article in the Richmond Dispatch. Governor Ralph Northam tweeted out a photo of the box, which does appear to be the copper described in the article, as opposed to lead like the first find. They haven't opened the box just yet, as they want to do so with utmost care, but according to the article from 1887, there should be items like a battle flag, a compass, a photo of Abraham Lincoln lying in his coffin, bullets and shells from the Battle of Fredericksburg, more coins, and so, so many texts printed on paper that will probably barely survive. Governor Northam is also leading a project to replace the time capsule with a current one and collected submissions for it this past summer. He said on that time capsule replacement project website and in statements, quote, It's time to say to the world, this is today's Virginia, not yesterday's. And one day, when future generations look back at this moment, they'll be able to learn about the inclusive, welcoming commonwealth that we're building together. End quote. 
And Alyssa Shotwell from the Mary Sue had an interesting point about the historicity of the artifacts discovered in the time capsule versus the statue itself and others like it. As someone with a graduate degree in museum studies, Shotwell says she's come to recognize that displaying these statues in museums so that we don't erase this part of our history actually isn't the great solution it may seem like on the surface. In part due to purely practical issues, you know, storage and programming limitations faced by many museums as well as tight budgets, etc. So, she writes, quote, The area would be of better use by including quality items, like the objects found in the cornerstone, instead. And I don't just mean because the Confederacy was trash, I mean the statues were mass-produced quickly, always in response to black Americans getting a crumb of civil rights. Museums are already filled with items, mostly made up of white supremacist materials or stolen via imperialism, which some in the industry are already trying to fix. They don't need these items that bear little actual worth, but lots of racism, too. End quote. As Shotwell points out, most of these monuments weren't put up until decades or even a century after the Civil War. They can't tell us nearly as much about that era as the smaller and easier to store primary source artifacts found in the time capsule. Of course, another option is what Shotwell shared is happening in Charlottesville, Virginia, with their former Robert E. Lee statue. They are actually melting it down and turning it into a new piece of public artwork that is being developed with community feedback. That's a pretty cool solution as well. Maybe we can put time capsules into the base of that new artwork, too. Time capsules everywhere for everyone. All right, well, that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.